Death is our natural state of being. We are dead for thousands of years, then we're born. We live for a very short period of time, and then we're dead again. Now, you may not realize how much upkeep actually goes into keeping a person alive. I mean, it's really a lot, isn't it? I mean, there's food, water, shelter. Then there are all these psychological needs that need to get met as well. There's engaging work, community, relationships. But one thing you may not realize that human beings need is we need meaning. We need some kind of why. Because, I mean, if you think about it, right? Without some kind of meaning in your life, what are you doing here? Why do you get bothered to get out of bed every day? You need some kind of, some kind of answer to that question. Because without it, I mean, you, you eventually die. Now, I'm not saying that you lose your meaning and then you just drop over dead. It doesn't happen like that. The way it actually happens is you lose your meaning. And then you're sad. And you become depressed. Anxious. Because you don't have an answer to this question of why. Maybe you even get suicidal. And it's no wonder that throughout human history, there has never been a single human civilization that didn't have some kind of religion to step up and say, this is why we are here. We are here to worship this God, to act this way, to resist these bad things. Religion is core to human history. There is no humanity or civilization without it, for better and for worse. And we live in a time where a lot of people are coming away from religion, from the old ways of establishing value in our lives. We're coming away from our original why. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to watch out for other potential whys, the answer to this big question that might pop up. I'd like to call these bad religions. They pop up, sometimes they're cults, sometimes they're political ideologies. These things are dangerous because they demonstrate a really important idea. They show us that it is better to have a bad reason for living, a bad why, than it is to have none. Because the people that don't have any meaning, they eventually, they just don't bother. They eventually die off. The people that do have this meaning, though, they will fight for that meaning. And one of the scariest examples in human history has to be National Socialism. Now, we are raised traditionally thinking of it as a political movement. But I think it goes much farther than just politics and, and what the government should or shouldn't be doing. I think it goes into the category of being a religion. Because it gives people meaning in a way that no other political entity does. Hello there, friend. Welcome back to History for Thinkers Notes, a show where we take notes on interesting books, ideas, and history generally. Make sure to follow the show for more episodes just like this one, and without further ado, let's get into the episode. We've been going through the Mein Kampf analysis series, where we kind of dissect and explore all the interesting ideas of Mein Kampf. We do it page by page. We, we get right to the interesting stuff. We cut out all the fluff. Let's be honest, Hitler was a very long-winded man, so there's a lot to cut out there. But while we were doing that series, we actually came across a really interesting quote, and that spawned an entire brainstorming session, and that eventually became this episode. So here is that quote in its full. Quote, Every Weltanschauung, or world's view, whether religious or political, and it is sometimes difficult to say where the one ends and the other begins, fights not so much for the negative destruction of the opposing worlds of ideas as for the positive realization of its own ideas. So Hitler wrote this talking about Nazism, his own ideology, and I, I just thought it was so fascinating how he used this German word Weltanschauung, which translates to worldview. And then he specifies, whether religious or political, and it's sometimes difficult to say where the one ends and the other begins. You know, so even Hitler kind of acknowledged that there was some kind of crossover between political ideologies and religious ones. So I don't know how much 
he thought of Nazism as a religion, but as we're going to see throughout this episode, it, it may be more than you previously believed. So, so we're going to be answering this question, what is the crossover, if any, and, and we need to start with the basics, right? So what is religion, right? Just to not get confused later on. So religion is a system of faith, is something that gives our lives meaning. It is an answer to the question of why. Really important, again, we die without some kind of answer to this question. If we don't have some kind of why, like, I mean, why are we, there's no point. Like, we may as well just die, you know. And, and again, it doesn't happen instantaneously. We don't lose our meaning and then just fall off the face of the earth. It doesn't happen like that. But we do get depressed, suicidal, and all around miserable. So we need some kind of reason why. And traditionally, this has been the role of religion. It tells us why, right? Um, why am I alive? Well, I want to spread uh, joy to the world, right? You know, be like Jesus. I mean, that was a good reason for a lot of people. Still is for a lot. And another thing that religion does is it informs our behavior and gives us values. So not only does it tell you why you are here, but it tells you how you should be when you're here. So if we're going to continue with this Christianity example, well, why are we here? Well, because we got to be tested. We got to, you know, prove ourselves to get to heaven, right? And then for our behavior, it could be something like, okay, be very share, you know, be caring about people, share your stuff, help the poor, right? And then that behavior reinforces the value of being humble, being a good person, being nice, caring, generous. So it it does a lot. I mean, religion, it's just such an important cornerstone of, of human beings, all right, of human history. So Nazis were very critical of Christianity. They were not the only people at this time, because again, this was during the scientific revolution, or I mean, even after it. I mean, by this point, it's the industrial revolution. So people are kind of coming away from this old way of viewing the world that, that God created everything and we need to just read the Bible and, and that's it. Life begins and ends in the Bible and that's the only stuff we need to live a good life. People are not buying it anymore. People are experimenting with different religions. People are criticizing the old religions. People are creating new ones. So the Nazis wanted people to move away from Christianity, not because it had some kind of big thing against it. I mean, there were a couple things, but really because it was competition. If you can have a religion that that religion comes before your political ideology, comes before the state. And if you really think about it, the values of Nazism and Christianity are incompatible. You cannot, in good faith, be a Christian and and then also a follower of Adolf Hitler. Like it, I mean, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, yeah, kill all the Jews. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And that was one of the things the Nazis took big problem with. They tried to get rid of parts of Christianity, specifically the parts, you know, the the parts that were influenced by the Jews. So the Old Testament, um, and then a couple different parts of the New Testament even. So they were trying to fundamentally change it. Now, one of the thinkers who influenced Nazism a lot, and not in a way you might think, was Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche was really, really against religion. He kind of criticized it for being dogmatic, and he wanted to destroy the old way of thinking so people, individually and for themselves, could answer this question of why. That is what Nietzsche wanted in his philosophy, and he really did his philosophy with with a hammer. He just smashed everything away. He wants everyone to start from scratch. We're going to figure out our own meaning. Ever since the Renaissance, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, humans have been changing the way they thought about themselves and the world they live in, their place in it, even. And by the time Nietzsche's writing about it, Christianity was already on the way out. Nietzsche wrote, quote, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. 
How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? That is one of his most famous lines, normally abbreviated to God is dead. And he really was kind of celebrating it, but also kind of just declaring it, right? We have done it. We have done away with the way the world has been for a very long time. Now, what's really scary about it, though, is that Nietzsche, he was such a forward-thinking man, such a crazy, he had such crazy insights into the human psyche. So one of the things that he actually predicted was a new idol. So we had previously worshipped the god of Christianity. That was our idol. That was what we aspired to. That was what gave our lives meaning. So we've come away from God. But what happens now? Well, Nietzsche predicted a new idol. Quote, A state is called the coldest of all cold monsters, Coldly lieth it also, and this lie creepeth from its mouth. I, the state, am the people. But the state lieth in all languages of good and evil, and whatever it saith, it lieth, and whatever it hath, it hath stolen. See just how it enticeth them to it, the many too many, how it swalloweth and cheweth and recheweth them. On earth there is nothing greater than I. It is I who am the regulating finger of God. Thus roareth the monster. Some pretty intense stuff. Pretty intense stuff. He wrote this in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which was his seminal work. And that's where he makes this prediction. That people are going to come away from the dying church. And they're going to find a new thing to worship. A new thing to give their lives meaning. We can think of this as Nietzsche's dark prophecy. Because Nazism became the new idol. That replaced the old God. Now there are a bunch of different components to religion, but most of academia has agreed on eight elements that are pretty core, pretty hard to get around with religion. So we are going to go through all eight of them and we are going to apply them to Nazism and see if there's something that sticks. So the very first is the belief in the supernatural. Now this one is one of the most difficult to figure out because nowhere in Nazism and the state organization or their propaganda do they come out and say something supernatural is going to happen. But it's kind of inferred, right? There was this underlying belief that Germany was going to come together and conquer the entire world, right? We're all going to come together under the spirit of Wotan, this Germanic archetypal spirit we're going to come together, we're going to conquer the whole world. So it's not that they were doing something that was supernatural or could have been supernatural, but it was like they were doing something that was so ambitious, that was, I mean, such a crazy long shot that it, I mean, it kind of had to be supernatural to expect it to happen, right? And as many people got wrapped up in this, it really... I mean, in a way, it almost could have, which is a really crazy idea. Germany could have ruled the world, right? Especially if World War II had not gone the way it did. I mean, we just don't know. But that one, so that one's interesting. But next is the belief in the sacred. That there are some things that have immense inherent value. And this one is the blood of the people, the blood of the German people, right? Unser deutsches Volk, as Hitler would say it. And this is really the most sacred thing. One of the things they're really against. Any kind of race mixing, any kind of Germans dying. You know, we're trying to keep the, the race alive. You know, increase the number of people that are us. Because ultimately, they believe that they were in, a, in an ancient battle. According to the Nazis, there, there was just this constant war going on between the races, and they wanted their race to win. 
Now, of course, that's a very limited and dangerous way of viewing the world. We know that today. But when you really think about it like that, the blood of your people is sacred. Your people are sacred. Next, we can move on to the system of rituals. And this one is was pretty easy to understand. I mean, there were a whole bunch, anything that was really organized by the government that was coming around, that was being nationalistic. So anything that was like a state-organized march. I mean, they had these military marches all the time. They were always playing this music. And then, don't even get me started on the rallies. I mean, the people at these rallies were insane. Insane. There was just such extreme fanaticism. And I would argue because, really, Nazism went beyond a political ideology. This was a religion to these people. The blood of the German Volk. It was sacred. And they, they came together and they they really, they just let their hearts out. I mean, it's the equivalent of what people feel when they go to church. Next, we have sinful acts. So what is something that you can do that is bad, that is you know, ultimately against the cause of the religion itself? Well, that is any kind of betrayal to Germany, right? The, the state, anything that harms the people, anything that jeopardizes the blood of the Volk. So if you marry outside of your race, or you marry a Jew, you marry an African, uh, you know, even other Europeans, if you were a German and you married a French lady, well, that was frowned upon because you're diluting your German blood. Your kids are going to be, you know, less German than you. So that was a bad thing. And anything that can be construed in that way is a sin in this religion. And then we have the mode of worship. Now, this one is really, it was kind of tough to figure out because typically a mode of worship is how you communicate with God. And generally it is, you know, you pray, you meditate, you know, maybe you talk to a priest. I mean, you do something like that. It's generally something you do alone, right? I mean, we don't, sometimes we pray in groups or whatever, but it's, it's, You know, really praying is something you're supposed to do by yourself, alone, at home. That's that. Or even meditation, right, if you're a Buddhist. But with the mode of worship in Nazism, it was much more of this enthusiastic, almost football team-like mentality. And they came together and they would just scream Sig Hail for hours at the top of their lungs. I mean, it was just, it was wild. And the way they did it was... So you would have like one person that was, you know, leading whatever rally or, you know, whatever was going on. And they would scream, Seek! And then their entire crowd would scream, Hail! And it would just go, Seek! Hail! Seek! Hail! And it would go on for just a long time. Just a long time. And they had that whole fascist arm thing. I mean, they really had this down to a science. They knew how to make this political organization feel like a religion, give people meaning. And at any point throughout your day, if you were a Nazi living under Nazi Germany, you basically had your identity of being a Nazi reinforced all the time. And if you guys are not familiar, Sieg Hail actually translates to Hail Victory. Now, for some reason, Sieg is victory, and then they say Hail after... I don't quite understand that. I'm not a German speaker. <laughs> We're German, you know. You would think that it would be Hail Sieg, but you know, again, I'm not a German. Let's move on, though. And of course, there's the ideology, and this one is—I mean, it's—it's it's the most obvious. This started out as a political ideology. It's political in nature. It gives you from day one a way of viewing the world, a way of judging events. So. So that one's pretty easily knocked out of the park. And then we have a place of worship. And of course, again, like like some of the other examples, it's anywhere that this nationalistic frenzy could be drummed up. So stadiums, rallies, sporting events, marches, parades, anything like that where you could come together and celebrate the state, celebrate the nation, celebrate the race. So these have been the eight elements of religion as applied to Nazism. 
And you can see that it goes much farther than most other political organizations, right? Because if we, I mean, if we go back and look at some of these and we try to think about how they would apply to something else, let's say free market capitalism, right? As just another political idea. Well, it's like, <laughs> that doesn't really have a belief in the supernatural. It, you know, maybe it has a belief in the sacred, but I mean, what would be the, the system of rituals for the free market ideology as a religion, right? And and you can go through some of these with any political ideology that you want, and not many of them can really fill out the boxes or measure up. But Nazism, I think it really does, really fit every single one of these to a T, which is kind of scary to think about. But again, this is why it was such a, a powerful ideology. This is why the Allies had to do so much denazification after World War II. It's really powerful stuff. When you have this meaning in your life, this is why you're here. It's really hard to undo that. So that's an interesting little bit, but there's a lot more to it. So we can start with the idea that politics is just supposed to be a discussion of what government should or shouldn't do. And historically, I mean, the very first answer to this question was that government is just supposed to do what it's going to do the way it wants, right? Monarchy. So the government makes its own decisions for itself. It, it just does it. doesn't ask you. And then we kind of started evolving these ideas of democracy, freedom. The idea that you, as someone who is ruled by the government, should have some kind of say in what the government does. So you could actually do politics as an ordinary citizen. I don't want the government to tell me what color I can paint my house. Or maybe you do. Maybe I want every house in our nation to be blue. It is the best color ever. It is the only color that should exist on any house in my nation. I don't want to live in this country if not every house is blue. So we can kind of see how this definition of politics what the government should or shouldn't do. And Nazism just goes so farther, so much farther than that. I mean, it, it incorporates so many of these different ideas of you as a person. If you're a German, at least. And something else they noticed, the Nazis and, and other people that weren't Nazis that interacted with them at this time, was they noticed that among the Germans, Hitler got a wild, wild response. I mean, people that were German, they, a lot of them loved this guy. They loved him. I mean, he was basically the second coming of Christ in some ways. And then the people that were in German, well, understandably, they didn't really care for him because they basically said that every race that isn't German is, is inferior. I mean, even Germany and Italy at this time, they kind of butted heads a little bit because the Germans were all like, yeah, we're the master race, we're the best, everyone else is inferior. And, well, that's really weird when you have to partner with people of other races. So when they partnered with Italy, it was kind of like, yeah, you guys are like ethnically inferior, but we'll partner with you, we'll, we'll let you help us. Ultimately, it's going to be us saving the day, though. And it made Mussolini get all defensive, and he had this whole thing of, you know, we had the Roman Empire, what were you Germans doing then? completely ignoring the fact that the Germans brought the Roman Empire down. Very interesting stuff. Very very funny when you look back at it. I mean, this whole Nazi blood race ideology, and it's just so warped, so out there. And Hitler actually had a really interesting take on, on things. So Hitler wrote, quote, The Nazi party should not become a constable of public opinion, but must dominate it. It must not become a servant of the masses, but their master. So Hitler kind of wanted to bring things back. So when we were talking about politics, we kind of talked about how it started out with monarchy, and then gradually we shifted and shifted more democratic. The people had more and more of a say in what the government does. And then Hitler, in a lot of ways, he was a new force to be reckoned with, but in a lot of ways... He was just returning to the old ways. I mean, the idea of a Fuhrer, right? Just one person controls the entire government. They can pass laws, basically do whatever they want. That is 
That's just, a, you know, a fancy way of saying a monarch. It's not new. It's, it's actually really old. Two figures that are often compared and contrasted quite a bit. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. They were alive at roughly the same time period, but they represented very different populations, very different countries, very different cultures. Joseph Stalin was a communist believed in the equality of everyone, was very against religion because it kind of undermined the spirit of communism. It was a tool of the bourgeoisie. But with Hitler, he disliked religion for a much different reason, because he literally thought of himself as a messiah or a god. I mean, he developed a messiah complex. There are quite a few interesting stories about Hitler insinuating that he's the second coming of Christ, or that Nazism is going to be like this new religion that completely replaces Christianity. Some pretty scary stuff, and that's something that you can say about Hitler that you cannot say about Stalin. Stalin, for all the crazy, big ego things that he did, he never once thought of himself as God, he didn't have a messiah complex, he didn't see himself as the second coming of Christ. But with Hitler... Hitler was almost something else. He embodied what Carl Jung would call an archetype. And in fact, it's great that Carl Jung lived during that time because he made quite a few interesting observations. So here's a quote that Carl Jung wrote when he was witnessing kind of what was going on and some of the mania that he, he saw firsthand. So Jung writes, quote, because the behavior of a race takes on its specific character from its underlying images, we can speak of an archetype, Wotan. So Carl Jung here, he's talking about how this archetype of Wotan became the symbol or the archetype of the German people. Kind of this thing, this spirit, this what would take over the entire world. And that's a really, really scary thing because... I mean, just think about what religion is. It is a bunch of mythology, stories. Really, they're just stories. A way of viewing the world. Archetypes. Now, we're not going to go do a whole thing on archetypes, but I'm going to be using that word a little bit here, so let's define what that actually is. So an archetype is a really powerful symbol that is universal across all cultures. So Carl Jung was really into identifying these. So a really popular archetype is the king. Every culture, whether it's Chinese, whether it's German, whether it's American, whatever, it has some kind of archetype of the king. This is as old as time. As old as time. And, that, and that's why these archetypes are so powerful and so important. They go beyond these specific cultural things. Because, you know, when you get into the culture itself... I mean, maybe they value this or that a little bit more. Maybe they view things a little bit differently. But on an archetypal level, these things, they are universal. We all, we all kind of have an idea of a joker or a king or a warrior even. And the thing about religion is that it so often has a single person that is the speaker for God or a spirit or a way of viewing the world. I mean, there's generally one person. I mean, for Christianity, it was Jesus. For Buddhism, it was the Buddha. For Islam, it was Muhammad. I mean, almost every religion has just one central figure that is the pivotal moment that humanity finds out about this great way of living, and then they, they flock to it. Which is really interesting, because Hitler very much insinuated on more than one occasion that he was the second coming of Christ. In fact, there's that one really famous biblical passage that's talking about Jesus, and he goes to the temple, the place of worship, the place people pray to God, and they're trading there, and they're making money, and they're gambling and selling stuff, and do just all these kinds of things that should not be inside the temple. And he gets really angry, he throws them all out. It's the only story in the Bible where Jesus does something violent. And it kind of shows 
that there is a place for righteous violence. Now, for Christianity, that is its own thing. But the scary part is that Hitler took this, this one little biblical passage, and he really applied it to himself. I mean, not publicly in his speeches. He wouldn't call himself Jesus in front of the German people because a lot of these people still were Christian. A lot of these people still went to church. So he wouldn't come out and say it. But privately, among his own people, I mean, they observed how he would walk up and down with a whip. And then he would say that, you know, I'm going to drive the moneylenders out of Germany. Who were those moneylenders? Well, to him, they were Jews. And that, it's an archetypal story. It is an archetypal story of righteous violence against someone doing wrong. And Hitler applied himself as Jesus. Hitler put himself in the archetypal story. And that is the scariest thing he ever could have done. So recently on the show, we covered the memoir of a Nazi insider, a man by the name of Ernst Hanstengel. That may be one of the best episodes we've ever covered. So I do encourage you guys to check that out. Really good research, really good information. I mean, just such crazy stuff. Things that you never otherwise would have thought about. But one of the things that Hans Stengel did was he, he was an early funder, an early member of the Nazi party. And he was always kind of skeptical of this fanaticism that was inside the party. And he noticed that as time went on, Hitler became more and more possessed by this fanaticism, this Nazi spirit, this archetype, right? This new religion, almost. And he talked about how it gave him superhuman energy. And that is, you know, I think we get so wrapped up in trying to bash Hitler and and make the Nazis look bad. Like, we're just so obsessed with trying to stop people from becoming Nazi sympathizers that we don't give them credit where credit is due. And, you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying that Nazism is good, nothing like that. I am just making an observation or even just telling you about Hanstengel's observation that Adolf Hitler was possessed by a superhuman energy. This man had more energy than, I mean, just think about how much time and effort went into, I mean, just getting the party off the ground during such a crazy time, dedicating his entire life to this political organization, taking control of the government. I mean, this is like the only thing he ever did every single day, all the time, for years. The guy didn't even give up when he was sent to prison. Not even that. And after he gets out of prison, he goes and he takes over the government in like less than 10 years. I mean, just crazy stuff. Crazy drive. Crazy energy. You just don't see that in people that don't have a meaning. Again, this all goes back to human beings and their idea of meaning, their purpose, their why. Hitler, as warped and as terrible and as despicable as his why was, he had one, and he was willing to give everything for it. And not just his life. I would say more than his life. So Carl Jung, again, he lived through these crazy times, and he saw a lot of this stuff firsthand. Now, this was one of the scarier passages that he wrote in an observation of Hitler. And we're just going to go through it. We'll discuss it a little bit. So Carl Jung writes, quote, His expression was that of an inhumanly single-minded purposiveness with no sense of humor. He seemed as if he might be a double of a real person and that Hitler the man might perhaps be hiding inside like an appendix, and deliberately so hiding in order not to disturb the mechanism. With Hitler, you do not feel that you are with a man, you are with a medicine man, a form of spiritual vessel, a demi-deity, or even better, a myth. 
With Hitler, you are sacred. You know you would never be able to talk to that man because there is nobody there. He is not a man, but a collective. He is not an individual, but a whole nation. I take it to be literally true that he has no personal friend. How can you talk intimately with a nation? Crazy quote. Crazy quote. And it's coming from Carl Jung of all people. So this isn't some rando. This isn't some nobody that makes these really dramatic observations. This is Carl Gustav Jung. Like one of the most important psychologists ever. One of the smartest people to have ever lived. And this is what he says about Adolf Hitler. Now, either he's wrong, or Hitler was a deeply, deeply disturbed individual. And now, here's what I want you to think about. With Hitler being the embodiment of the collective of the German people. Does that sound like a political manifestation? Or does it sound like a religious one? It is beyond politics. This is beyond what the government should or shouldn't do. This goes so much further. He embodied the myth, the archetype, a spiritual vessel. I mean, just such powerful language here. It's scary. It really is just unbelievable. Because I don't think that anyone who has come this far in believing in their cause, whatever cause that is. I don't think anyone's ever taken it to the extreme that Adolf Hitler did. I mean, how did Jesus feel about Christianity? Was was it more intense or less intense than how Hitler felt about Nazism? Was it more intense or less intense than how uh, Muhammad felt about Islam? I mean, these are valid questions to ask. And I'm going to say that maybe, just maybe, there's a good chance that he took Nazism as seriously as these other religious figures did their respective religions. Maybe even more so. Maybe even more so. So let's talk about some of these other components of Nazism and how they explain the world people, and the German people's place in that world. So let's start with this idea of the master race. So firstly, this idea of the master race is is weird. I mean, it already acknowledges that Europeans are better than everyone else. But to go even further, the only reason the Europeans are, are as good as they are is because they're close to the Germans. So the Germans are just like, This holy grail, this is what human beings are supposed to be, the master race. And then the the other Europeans, the French, the the British, the Italians, all these people, the only saving grace that they've got against all the other subhumans is that they are close to the Germans and they have some intermixing with the Germans. So that's just a really weird, wonky ideology. Um, And what it did early on was it attracted people with hardcore inferiority complexes, especially in the beginning. Eventually, when this became state policy, state ideology, it kind of forced everyone to join. So after a while, it's like, you know, you became a Nazi, not because you wanted to, but because you had to in order to not die. But early on, all these people, they just had massive, massive inferiority complexes They didn't feel like they were good enough. They were losers. I mean, from Joseph Goebbels to Hermann Goering and Hess and Himmler. I mean, these were not people that were winners before they joined the party. They, they, you know, they had miserable lives before and they found a cause, a why, to kind of give them meaning in life. You know, they had a cause to live and to die for. And then, of course, this master race thing, it kind of helped because they felt bad about themselves. They felt like they were inferior to everyone around them. I mean, especially Joseph Goebbels, man, that guy. 
his inferior complex was nuts. He, one time he beat down his own wife for, because she helped him when he fell. I mean, just crazy inferiority complex. And, well, they, they just, they flocked like moth to a flame. Because this ideology, this way of viewing the world said that you are better than everyone else. Not just some people, you're better than everyone. You as a German are superior to billions of other human beings. And that's a really powerful thing to do. Does a lot for them. So it, it really kind of embedded this us versus them, tribalistic way of viewing the world into the ideology. So even, even if things had been dialed down and it got less extreme as time went on, which typically happens with these extremist regimes, right? I mean, the Soviet Union under Stalin, pretty intense. They were going at like a 10. But Stalin dies, and then things, you know, they come down to a solid 8, you know. Not quite a 10, but just a little bit less so until it gradually fizzled out. Definitely would have happened with Nazism as well, but they always would have been applying this tribalistic way of viewing the world to everything. It was a core principle of their worldview, their Weltanschauung. And it was the Ubermensch, the superhumans, against the Untermensch, the subhumans. And another really important component to Nazism is how it really is one of the best implementations of a collectivist ideology ever. I do mean ever. In fact, when you apply racial, a racial lens to your collectivist ideology, you do something very smart you automatically exclude a whole bunch of people. So you're limited in how far your ideology can go. But the people that are within that group, that are potential believers in the cause, it's a little bit more likely than that they join, right? I mean, you're never going to get, uh, you know, let, let's say someone that's a non-German to believe in Nazism. Like, you're just never going to convince them that yeah, my place in this world is an inferior <laughs> subhuman compared to the Germans, but I'm okay with that. Like, people aren't going to think that, right? Um, but what's, what's really fascinating about it, though, is that when you have these clear lines, you eliminate so much confusion, so much chaos. And again, I just don't understand why people have not taken advantage of this before. So when you think about other collectivist ideologies, they kind of devolve. They kind of implode among themselves because, well, you have all these people and they believe in some of these principles, some of these ideas, but maybe some of them change. Maybe some of the old ideas were wrong. Maybe we should do things this way. Maybe we shouldn't do things that way. And then because it's based on these ideas, well, your take on those ideas can sometimes create this division that ultimately results in, you know, party infighting and eventually two, you know, different political parties altogether. All right, like with communism, very collectivist ideology. But the problem with it is that Karl Marx had a lot of flaws in his way of viewing the world. A lot of his observations, a lot of the things that he thought and wrote about were just wrong or you know, and that's not to say he was stupid. I think that he had a lot of really important ideas, a lot of really good criticisms of the West and capitalism and, you know, so on and so forth. But when you have a Marxist organization and some of those people think that, oh, hey, Marx was wrong about the dictatorship of the proletariat. We shouldn't do things that way. And then you have other people that say, listen, Marx, this, this is our ideology. This is what communism is. If you don't believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat, you're out. You're not a Marxist. So it automatically creates division. At least for people that have a, you know, they think critically. They think they are capable of thinking for themselves. Not everyone does. Um, but with race, it's just like, are you German? Yes, then you're one of us. Are you, are you German? No, oh, get the hell out of here. You're not one of us. So... That, that's just a really powerful thing. And, you know, race doesn't change. 
doesn't change over time, but ideas do. Ideas do. And that is part of the reason that Nazism is such a powerful thing. And we are very fortunate and very lucky that the Nazis lost World War II. Because God only knows the world we would be living in if not. Probably would not be anything like the one we know today. That's something we should be thankful for. So now we can actually talk a little bit about how a business idea can be applied to Nazism not just as a political ideology, but as a religion. So, and this is the idea of the addressable market. So, in business, there is a lot of money to be made when you are the biggest in, you know, in doing whatever thing, right? You make a lot of money if you're Walmart. You know, you go to Walmart, they do everything. They do food, they do clothes, they do bikes, anything that you can want, they got it. And it's, kind of like Christianity. It is the everything for everyone. But with Nazism, it's something that we would call niched down. Now, the thing about niching down is you have a smaller addressable market. So the biggest your religion could ever be is every single German person that that is alive can't go any farther than that because people that don't believe in, you know, being an inferior, you know, they they don't want to see themselves as inferior. So you're never going to get those people to adopt your worldview or see your religion the way you want. But with Christianity, it goes, you know, it can be everyone. I mean, theoretically, every person on earth can be a Christian. Like it's totally possible. In fact, a lot of people thought it was inevitable at one point, but they were wrong. But so Germany kind of has that thing about it, and it makes the overall long-term potential much smaller because you can only ever get that many, you know, as many Germans are alive, that's the total number of people you can have in your group. But what it does is when you niche down like that, it allows you to understand the psychology and the marketing and the messaging a lot better. So maybe I don't want to be Walmart. I want to be Gucci, right? I want to make really high quality stuff that people are going to love. You know, I'm going to make these Gucci things. And yeah, there's only going to be a few people on earth that can afford to buy Gucci. But by God, I'm going to have as many as I can. And because I'm selecting for a specific kind of person, I can you know, target my messaging, target everything a lot better. And that, what it really does is it has a higher conversion rate. So, when you think about it, Nazism is really just a niche religion. And because it's niche down like that, it tells these specific people on this planet, a very specific group, a very specific culture and race, what it is that they are, what what their role in the universe is, it is really powerful. It's very, it's a lot easier to convince a German about Nazism than it is to convince them about Christianity, because Christianity kind of has to change everywhere it goes, right? I mean, the Christianity that they practice in Asia is kind of different than what we do in the West, or what even the the Russian Orthodox Church right? I mean, very different flavors of Christianity. It has to change everywhere it goes, different interpretations, different ideologies. But with Nazism, you can have one kind of worldview, one kind of Nazism, like it doesn't have to change. It's just one universal thing and that's it. That's a really powerful thing. And that's why, at least in that sense, it has a leg up on a lot of existing religions, or it had. Thank Again, thank God that the Nazis lost World War II because they really could have taken over the world with all the Germans on their side. And then another really, really powerful component to Nazism, the religion, is the persecution complex. So it's really difficult to get people to believe in your cause when you frame yourself as a bad guy. Obviously, the Nazis, I mean, we see them as the bad guys, 
You know, they were killing minorities, they were killing Jews, they wanted to invade and take land from all their neighbors. It was pretty easy to see them as the bad guys from the outside. But they were really good at framing things, really good at propaganda. Listen, we're not invading Poland, we're defending ourselves against Poland. And that is how you frame things. And it really helps when you double down on the persecution complex, when we're defending ourselves, we are being attacked, we are being shunned, we are being murdered. Genocide is being committed against you. Join us now. Stop the genocide. Very powerful propaganda. In fact, it still actually works to this day. I mean, there are far-right groups on the internet that use the exact stuff the Nazis did. Some of it is really powerful and effective, and it works. But with Christianity, you know, again, that was something even they used, right? This whole, the persecuted Christian, you know, the idea that, you know, the Romans are feeding us to the lions, so we just got to hold down and double down on our faith. We got to believe even harder now. So this feeling of persecution creates a lot of sympathy for the movement, for the group, for the people in that group. In fact, you could actually say about the persecution complex that it does a good job of making sympathetic people. You know, maybe people that weren't members but were kind of sympathetic to the cause, it turns them into members. Let's say you are halfway on board with being a Nazi, right? But then you see that the communists murdered Hurst Feisel, you know, this famous Nazi. So they murdered her. They murdered him? How could they do that? Those monsters. We need to fight against them. Creates sympathy and it pushes people in that direction. Maybe, maybe a better word would be pulls. Pulls people in. Pulls people into the ideology. Gets them to believe. And then, then they're converted. And they have been converted. And then with Christianity, I mean, they had a very specific word for the people that sacrifice themselves for the cause of Christianity, right? The martyrs, the people that died because they were not willing to give up their beliefs. They were not going to renounce Jesus. They weren't going to say God is, is fake or, you know, whatever. They weren't going to do it. I would rather die than denounce Jesus Christ. And they went to their grave. A lot of them did. A lot of them were tortured. Very powerful stuff. That's the kind of stuff that can get people to believe in your religion. Say, oh my God. Oh my God. One of Jesus' followers was burned alive. He still wouldn't denounce Jesus. He still continued. He died. That is very powerful. And the Nazis made note of that. And it was even, even better for the Nazis in some ways. Because people were not necessarily killed or murdered or shunned or persecuted for being a Nazi, but for being a German. And again, it goes back to this whole niche marketing thing where you need to join us because we're the Germans, we're speaking on your behalf and we're being persecuted. You're being persecuted for being German. And they took advantage of a lot of these historical events, a lot of these historical trends. Germany kind of had an inferiority complex on on the, you know, the big stage of Europe. They felt like they were less than France. They felt like they were le less than the UK. And they should have been at least on equal footing, right? They had really big industry. I mean, they were kind of backward and you know, kind of old school in a lot of ways. But Germany really could have, would have, should have been a superpower. They were on that way. And then World War I happened. And then it just created this very terrible, I mean, the Treaty of Versailles. And I mean, you can really view it as the German people being persecuted for things that were not their fault. No German person was responsible for causing World War I. They just didn't, at least the citizens, right? Maybe you can make an argument for people in the government fair game. But the government is the government and the people are the people. They're two different things. And the German people, right? Some 10-year-old kid named Hans, you know, living in uh, northern Germany, that kid had to suffer 
because his dad died in World War I, and then the, the, the country had to pay these massive reparations, so Hans grew up starving. And then by the time he's an adult, the Nazi party is around and saying, hey, we've been persecuted because we're Germans, because other races hate us. They know that we're better than them. So we're, we're going to get revenge. We're going to undo the Treaty of Versailles because we're being unduly persecuted. And then we're going to get revenge. We're going to get payback. That is exactly why Nazism was so powerful. So powerful. So if you ever sit back and wonder how people could, could get on board with such a radical, fanatic ideology, I mean, you got to think about all these things they had in their favor. Because the Treaty of Versailles was the best thing that ever happened for the Nazis. Because without it, you don't have the persecution complex. Without the persecution, the persecution complex, you probably don't get a lot of people to join in your crazy ideology. You don't get a lot of people to sympathize with it. So, historical trends, these events, they matter. They really do matter. And then another thing the Nazis used to justify their beliefs, their worldview, their Weltanschauung, was by using science, the science of its day. And anyone who is an avid science believer, someone that loves science, will know that science is ever-changing. What we used to think we knew turns out to be wrong, right? Science gets updated, it gets challenged, there's a new paradigm Oh, hey, Pluto isn't a planet anymore. Or maybe it is. Here, here's some arguments for and against. That's what science is. Constant argument, constant debate, change. But it brings us closer to the truth. The problem with using science to justify your ideology or your ideas is that your ideas might be wrong. In fact, Bertrand Russell famously said, quote, I won't die for my beliefs. I might be wrong. I don't think I could have said it any better because you really could be wrong. You just don't know. You can believe something that's wrong for your entire life. I mean, think about all the people that died for the Nazi cause. I mean, millions of Germans. Millions. They thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, how many German kids and teenagers and, you know, young men? They're in Germany the World War comes around, the Second World War comes around, and they're like, okay, I'm going to fight for my country. I'm going to die for my beliefs. Guess what, buddy? Your beliefs were wrong. And it's, you know, it really is a tragedy. It is as much chaos. It's as much a tragedy for the people that were victims of Nazism as it was for the people that were part of it. Because they died for... A false ideology created by a madman. I mean, really. And it kind of gets us to this idea that Nazism spawned out of Germany's collective unconscious. Something Carl Jung talks quite a bit about. What was it that Nazism gave the German people that they could not get elsewhere? What did they get from this ideology? Well, the Germans lacked an identity. There was still not a lot of time since the German unification in the 1870s. This was still a new country. So all these people kind of spoke the same language, kind of had the same culture, but they still didn't feel connected. I mean, even to this day, 2021, there's still a big divide between different states in Germany. Bavari ask a Bavarian what they think of uh, someone from Berlin. Sometimes it's not very good, you know, and vice versa. So there was still a lot of division despite being in, a, in, you know, this unified country. So they lacked this community. They lacked this identity, something that solidified them together. And then they had their international persecution. They were persecuted by France and the UK and Russia. And all these people were signing on and, and benefiting from Germany's misfortune. And that created a lot of anger because people wanted revenge for that. And then finally, the same way that Nazism attracted people with an individual inferiority complex, 
It tempted the German nation, all these millions of Germans, because they had a national inferiority complex. After being denied the role of a superpower in the world and Europe, they couldn't take the answer that they got from the world, which was no. They said, we're not going to give you the status of being a world superpower. And instead of accepting that answer, the German people said, fine, we're going to take it. I hope you guys enjoyed this video. Thank you so much. Make sure to check out the Hanf Stengel episode if you're into that. Check out the Mein Kampf analysis series. We're going to be finishing that hopefully before the end of the summer. Very long series. And if you want more content just like this, bonus episodes, extra episodes, get your name on the big screen, guys can check out patreon.com slash historyforthinkers. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next one. Peace out. Thank you.